Welcome to the Operate Podcast, where we give you a behind-the-scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by my friend Jeff Martin at Peak Planning. He helps build high-performance teams for venture-backed growth companies and VC firms that support them. Uh, Jeff and his team have a facilitated leadership team session that they'll run with tools that help create focus, alignment, and accountability amongst the team. And he is really good at getting the team on board with a three-year vision, one-year plan, quarterly OKRs, and tools to stay on track along the way. I have a bunch of friends that have used Jeff and Peak Planning and have had really successful results. If you want to learn more, reach out to me or I can point you to Peak Planning and Jeff. I'm super excited to have Zach Silverman with me on the podcast today. And before we get to hear from Zach, let me tell you a little bit about him and how we got connected. So beginning of this year, Zach started a new Slack group called Educated Investors. And we got connected on Twitter, and I feel grateful because Zach did invite me. Uh, I'm not sure if I qualify as a truly educated investor, but like many, uh, continue to want to learn and collaborate with others. And he's created a great digital watering hole to do that. And it's been a lot of fun, and actually some really productive things have come out of it. He has a really varied background, and I think the similar curiosity that I have in a number of things, which I believe is what led him to start it, but I'm gonna let him tell that story. But Zach has background in marketing, politics, even startups and nonprofits. Zach, it's great to have you on the Operate Show today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Absolutely. So I talked just briefly about educated investors. Tell my audience your journey to ultimately starting this and how did you get some other people to show up? Yeah, sure. So really I've been involved in the kind of like tech Twitter VC Twitter community um, since I uh, got a job at a, at a virtual accelerator uh, in June of 2020. And so I started to really, really make it my niche and started to follow a lot of people and really started to learn. And I started to really understand the inequities that existed in the tech and VC community and, and in fundraising. And it's backed by data of just that women and black people and other you know, non-white groups are, are really just underrepresented uh, within the founders, within GPs. And so I've been really wanting to, to focus my efforts on, on fighting that, right? And then eventually over time, uh, around the end of 2020 in November, December, um, I saw that there was an opportunity to potentially become an LP in uh, Mac Conwell's fund, Rare Breed Ventures. And um, the thing is, is that I'm not an accredited investor, but my dad is. And so um, because of the kind of low minimum check size that, that um, Mac offered, um, there was an opportunity for essentially us to split it. And so Mac was pitching both me and, and my father. And in response to a few things, my dad had a couple of questions as somebody obviously might. And he, but the questions that he was asking were like really rudimentary mm-hmm. things like, what is this 2% management fee? Sure. Right. What is, what do you say customer acquisition strategy? Can you tell me more about that? What does that really mean? Right. 
And then later on, when we were having conversations, he would ask me things about quarterly financials and management oversight. And, you know, my dad is not a financially illiterate person. He was a debt collection lawyer for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And so he's very, very well versed in, in stocks and in business, but this was seemed to be very much out of his depth, right? Because for two reasons, one, it's a very new thing to invest in early stage assets because it's just wildly different strategy than it is to maybe invest in real estate or invest in, you know, something like a restaurant, sure. right? And, and secondly, there's just no, there's just speaking the same language. They're not speaking the same language, right? When you're talking about customer acquisition strategy, lifetime value, MRR, you know, IRR, you know, all that stuff that does not compute with someone who has no frame of reference, who just like doesn't understand. They understand net profits, gross margins, EBITDA, right? So what I, what something clicked in my head was that the reason that we have this inequity in GPs and founders and the people who fund them is because the vast majority of the people who are funding these people are white men who come from a traditional finance background, right? They have MBAs or they're very, they've been very successful in business, right? And so they look through the frame of reference of the traditional finance model. On the other hand, the, the founders that are coming up, especially in the Gen Z generation, um, as well as you know, for, for GPs, they actually are being raised on startup language. And so when they go into business, they're not thinking about gross margins, they're thinking about valuations, mm. right? So their entire frame of reference is an entirely different language. And so what I figured out was that for the most part, what we need to do is we need to actually educate accredited investors on how to invest in early stage assets. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, we're going to continue to see the same people funded over and over both as founders and as GPs. So we not only need to radically increase the number of potential LPs, but we need to educate them along the way. And so what I wanted to do was start a community of people like yourself who is an educated investor. You do know what it means to invest in startups, but like you said, you always are trying to learn. You're always looking for more support. You're looking for better ways to find better deals. So I started with that and with that fundamental understanding that yes, there are plenty of accredited investors out there that are very well-versed in early stage assets. They're always still looking for support and they're always still looking to learn. That's great. That's great. Thank you for that um, starting point. And I think you're spot on. I mean, you know, I don't advertise it, but I think I made my first angel investment almost 20 years ago. So wow. I have been uh, in this for a long time. And I think to your point, it is not an inclusive group. It's a pretty exclusive club. And what I, you know, what I kind of like is that my background, I, I grew up in a small town in a family business. It was all about, we were retail merchants. And so getting into this world was a new world and it's been fascinating, but your point is absolutely accurate. And I think we have to also educate founders because the, you know, I've said for a long, long time, the venture world has an incredible PR machine. And what we have to make sure that founders also know is that raising other people's money isn't always the ideal scenario, isn't always the appropriate approach. And it really shouldn't be looked at as a badge of honor. It should be looked at as 
uh, an opportunity because of the opportunity that you have in front of you, because it tends to be really expensive money too, versus being able to go to a bank or other options. So it, it, it's a fascinating industry. Um, it helps move forward some of the greatest innovations in our world, but it is a uh, it is something that people need to fully understand and, and probably not overly glamorize, but it's super cool to get involved with really interesting new companies. That's for sure. Yeah. And, you know, that's another aspect that I wanted to, to really focus on, which was that while, yes, the software solutions that exist today create a lot more opportunities to bootstrap and self-fund into profitability, and, uh, and to get yourself enough traction to potentially get to that, to that next stage. Um, at the end of the day, you know, and that's where I want to educate more accredited, more accredited investors because so often they look at those signals like traction and, and revenue brought in or money being raised and they wonder why haven't you raised any money? You know, why don't you go to you know, your family and friends? But for so many people, they don't really have that option, especially right. those who are non-white. And so often the people, and I could, I could probably, if I asked you, you know, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I can imagine that that first angel investment probably came from a close, somebody in your close network, right? It actually wasn't, but, oh, it wasn't. you know, but I, you know, but I, I think, you know, you and I were talking before and I'm an adventurer, Zach. That's and true. So when I get excited about something that I think, you know, needs to exist in the world and I feel like I can be additive to it. I, I may lead with my, with my heart, but also with my checkbook and say, I, this needs to exist. I'll, to whatever extent this is helpful, I'll go first. And that, that, that was fair. one where I got involved and uh, it, you know, it, it, it was a, a pretty exciting company. I mean, you know, in that case, I also, I came in with my checkbook, but also my time. Mm. And my goal was, hey, I'm thinking like an owner I'm going to invest my time and I'm going to invest my money. And hopefully as this has success, I, I get compensated fairly for that. That's fair. So then I would probably say that you're in the minority when it comes to that, because so often people who start to, you know, no pun intended, but venture into yes. angel investing, right? They start with their close network, right? right? They go it's the to- country club, It's the country club, church parking lot. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and a close network investments. And look, that's not a terrible place to start. The problem is we probably don't put the same level of scrutiny on it because of the friendly or familial nature of it. Well, that and also I would go even one step further that one of the things that concerns me about so many people starting with their close network is that if you want to be successful as an angel investor, right, or just in startup investing in general, you have to abide by the power law. You have to see a hundred deals before you decide to invest in one or two of them. And so if you are only looking to your close network to provide you deals, you're probably only looking at maybe a dozen or so deals, if, if that, before you actually make an investment. And it's very often that someone might just say, hey, my son is starting a company. Would you be interested in putting in $25,000? And of course, that person is going to, you know, that person's going to say yes, if they have the funds to do so. And then what happens is that these startups, because 
99% of startups fail at this point, like relative to, to the venture economics that we know, they come back and they say, well, I put in 25K and I got 10 back. So I don't know who's telling you that this was a great idea. So I'm just not going to invest. I'm, I'd rather put my money into the S&P 500. I'd rather put my money into real estate. I'd rather give my money to my financial advisor and let them invest my money. And so what we have to do is prepare people from the very beginning about what it truly means to invest in startups and why it's actually better that if you're somebody that's not going to do this on a professional basis, where you're literally doing day in and day out, that frankly, you should just give your money to either a venture capitalist who's raising a venture fund or find a syndicate leader and offer your uh, like offer to be an LP in their syndicate. Because the vast majority of angel investors are not going to be able to do this in a way that's going to provide them the return on investment that's going to lead them to continue to do it. Unless, of course, they get lucky. That's right. And, and to your point, you need to do a lot of them, right? Yeah. You, you've got to, you need just like, Going into the S and P five hundred is five hundred investments, right? You you need to have uh, a lot of them. I uh, just had on my podcast last week uh, a really neat guy who he's made over four hundred investments in his career, right? So he's got a huge pattern and a huge uh, experience set and diversification, as you can imagine, exactly. as well. So let's go back to the to the group that you've started. You know, you've been at this now for several months, but still early. What, what would you say is the best story that you've taken away thus far as you go? That was great that this has happened because I set this up. I would honestly say that the two deals that we've already had come through, um, sponsored by members of our community that have led to investments has been really exciting. Um, I think that while for many two deals maybe sounds like a little, um, that within only a three month period for them to happen, I think is, is really amazing. Um, and we're just getting going. And I don't have too many fun stories just because of our, our short period of time that we've been, that we've been a group. Um, but I'm starting to really see the momentum. I think just like in general, you know, starting with, you know, 20, 30, you know, 50 investors. And now we're a community of over 130 that are in the group. And you're starting to see more and more people bring deals that they have, um, that they've invested in or that they can personally vouch for. People are starting to bring in other uh, people of their, in their own community, just, you know, without me asking. And so I think just in general, I'm really, really starting to see the momentum and I'm, I'm really excited about um, continuing to work on it. That's awesome. So talk a little bit more about, you, you mentioned the um, really heartfelt need to improve diversity um, like Mac is doing, which is awesome. How, how are you thinking about this community to help drive more of that to happen? Well, so diversity has been uh, an integral aspect of the community since the very beginning, and that's intentional. And just to kind of talk a little to provide some context in general, when you're trying to build a community, you have to have a goal in that community and you have to create the foundation with intentionality. And I think a lot of people, when they try to build community, they believe that community is just a group of people that all have like a common interest, right? Or like that they all have a common hobby or that they do an activity together. That's really not what a true community is. Now community might be created because, you know, if everybody, you know, if, you, if you've ever moved to a new city, 
right? And uh, from your hometown and you're, you know, you're a big sports fan. So you go to, you know, the local bar that mm-hmm. is the, is the whatever bar, right? That creates community because it just naturally puts people in, in that place. Sure. But when you're trying to bring people together, it has to be really intentional from the very beginning. And so I thought about this from the very beginning, which is I want to make sure that this does not end up like every other community out there. So I personally reach, I don't actually recruit white men. I know it sounds crazy, Mm -hmm. but I don't actually reach out to white men to be a part of the community. White men will ask me if they can be a part of the community, if they're a credit investor, I'm certainly not going to say no by any means, but I personally recruit people who are non-white male investors in order to do so. And interestingly enough though, like, and that's actually where, thank you. And so that's interesting where I'm having actually a little bit of, uh, a little bit of trouble because so often a lot of these accredited investors who are non-white males, the, you know, they already have existing communities out there because they've been excluded from those other ones. Mm-hmm. So now I'm starting to look at how do I go beyond just the Slack group, right? Or how do I provide that much more value to be in the Slack group in order to bring them in or to at least bring them into the general educated investor community beyond just the, the Slack group? Sure. Yeah, I mean, being that kind of evangelist out there in front and, and being that bridge is is really cool. I'm sure, you know, like somebody like uh, Lolita Taub and the things she's doing are amazing. I've had a, a great experience mentoring a bunch of founders uh, in her network as well. And so there are a lot of really cool efforts underway that like, like hers and yours that I hope will better connect and support each other. Oh yeah. And you know, Lolita has done a phenomenal job mm-hmm. to like the, the statistics that she has on her founder investor matching tool. is just absolutely incredible. And mm-hmm. it's certainly something I, I aspire to. I don't know how I'm going to get to that point, uh, but she's done a really, really amazing job and definitely an inspiration for, um, for the community. And she's a member of the community herself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just really exciting to see. And I'm hoping to to uh, elevate the kind of deal flow that we have to uh, that that she offers. So I just saw yesterday. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, I saw Eileen Lee posted some all raise data on 2020, and I have to say I wasn't surprised. I, I we we started operate at the end of 2019. A big part of our objective was to proactively recruit in uh, diverse founders. And, you know, one of the other things that I'm pretty actively involved with here in my community is trying to help a lot of first gen college students with getting into their career, getting the kind of support post school that it it gives them the confidence to think bigger. Because my, my hope is that a lot of these folks become the future entrepreneurs because they have the grit, they have the determination uh, they just need to, that some of that support and, and confidence. And so I have, I have to say, I'm not surprised because I've felt a bit of a retrenchment from particularly the investor community that they've kind of gone back to the places that, and the people they already know and that it's been difficult. So as you think about that, I mean, you know, women and minority groups have had much less success in 2020. Do you think it's a bump in the road? Because on the same side, I feel like we are seeing at least more intentional discussion about it. Um, do you think it's just hand-waving or do you think it's a bump in the road and we are making progress? 
I mean, I would like, I would hope to say that we're making progress, but clearly we're not, you know, just from a data perspective. And I think that's, it's really important because I, I don't know if you also follow Del Johnson on mm -hmm. Twitter, mm -hmm. um, but he is very outspoken about this because as much as we want to talk about it, right, and we're publicly out there, right, to say that like we support women founders, we do this, we support non-white founders, we support non-white GPs, at the end of the day, the data isn't isn't changing. The data shows that it's getting worse. And I think that we really have to take a moment to pause and say like, what is the disconnect between what people are saying publicly and what people are doing privately? Mm -hmm. Because we can't keep just using anecdotes to describe that the world is getting better. Mm -hmm. And I've and I've engaged with this a few times. I, especially it happens from like white male investors that say, well, uh, my portfolio is, you know, 50%, right? Or I had 100 meetings and I don't know how many, but I could tell you I had tons of non-white male people pitch me, right? Mm -hmm. And then of course you have these like ridiculous uh, goals of like 10% of our meetings are going to be non-white founders. And it's like 10, 10%, is that a typo? And I think it's just, it's really, really important that we dig in to like what the data says and acknowledge that the data showcases that it's getting worse or that it's, and that it's certainly not getting better. And one of the other reasons that I started this educated investor group with the intention of literally, hopefully flooding the market with more LPs, mm -hmm. but starting with the standpoint of diversity is not only good for, because investing in diverse founders is good, but it's actually financially better for you, sure. right? It is actually financially irresponsible not to invest in diverse GPs and diverse founders because they bring outside returns relative to white male founders and white male GPs. And so what we need to do is legitimately replace the LPs, or at the very least, we need to bring in so many new LPs that the new GPs that are coming in, right? The new syndicate leaders and the new startup founders that are coming in have a massive pool of new investors that they can go to that do not subscribe to the old world. Sure. Because then otherwise, it's just, otherwise there, nothing's going to change because we're going to keep going to the same institutions over and over and over again. And those same institutions are mostly white men and maybe they have one or two people on their investment board, but they're certainly not the decision makers. And that's how we get to where we are today. So how do you think about, so a, a couple of things. How do you think about, let's say, someone like me who is a white man, but has an intentional willingness and effort to try to do it differently. So that let's start with that. And then I have another related question. Sure. So this is nothing to say onto you. It's a matter of understanding your input and your output. So right. as opposed to talking about you specifically, because I don't want to make any assumptions about you. I would say that in general, because I'm a white man myself, right? If you are a white male investor in tech and you're doing your very best to bring in as many diverse founders and GPs into your, into your deal flow and into your meeting space, right? That's great. That's important. Mm -hmm. And also look at the output, right? So over the course of a, of a quarterly perspective, right? If you say, okay, I had... 200 meetings this quarter with founders and I wrote four checks and then you look at those four checks that you wrote in that quarter and they all went to white men you have to ask yourself why sure. 
Yes. Because it can't, because then otherwise it's even worse because now what you're doing is you're literally pulling them in, but for whatever reason, you're still creating that bias right in your head mm-hmm. and, and it's okay. And I think what I really, really want to emphasize with everybody is that like, it's, oh, it's okay to, to acknowledge that you made the mistake, right? What, I, what I'm not saying is don't feel ashamed of it, right? I don't want you to feel ashamed of that output. What I want you to, what I want you as the generic, as a mm-hmm. generic white male, right? Whoever is listening to this to just merely recognize and acknowledge what's going on and why you think that these are the four or the X number of companies that you've invested in and why they just so all happen to look like you. So sure. it is better, right? To have more meetings, right? To have more meetings with founders, to open yourself up to it. And also we have to really be intentional about like making sure that we're writing checks, right? Hire and wire should always mm-hmm. be the foundational values that we're looking at when it comes to making sure that diverse founders and diverse GPs are getting the recognition that they deserve. Great perspective. Thank you. So second question, somewhat related. Do you think it's just about what you just said, which is hire and wire and use the same approach? Or do you think we actually need to change the approach to how we support some of these under represented groups. And the reason I say that, it, I, I like to use the term under networked. I went to state schools. I, I'm not from that uh, lineage. And I look at it as, you know, some of the things that we probably need to consider are how do we include more people in the network and that we need to show them also what it means to build a, a venture backable venture growth kind of company to warrant the investment. Because just because they're willing to start a company, if you're just giving them money and that's it, that may not solve it. It may lead to, in some cases, more failures that don't self-reinforce. So part of how I think about it is how do you also help them increase their chances of success as part of this as well? Because uh, it, it, you almost have to over over invest in some respects, not just capital, but other resources to, to try to help. What do you think about that? So I, I want to challenge that premise in, in a couple of ways. Okay. One is to recognize that, frankly, we have over invested in white men, if you really think about yeah, it. That's what I'm saying. I, right? I, I so totally agree you, with you. Yes. Right. And so if you if you look at the startup statistics, right? We always, who knows what the actual like failure rate of startups is, sure. but like everybody likes to subscribe to like the 99% of, of startups will fail, right? Those 99% of startups that fail usually end up being, are usually run by white men. And yet we don't necessarily are concerned about reinvesting in, in white men again, mm-hmm. right? And so what we have to do is really accept that that bias of, even if women and non-white groups, non-white founders fail, why do they represent that group of people in the way that white men don't? Mm-hmm. And so I, under, I definitely understand that concept around like under network. In reality though, we should be again, challenging that premise that they need to be in the network to begin with and rather focus on the fact that we need to create better systems to allow essentially more cold outreach, right? We just need to create more access mm-hmm. so that way they can just access the capital necessary. And Overall, 
we have invested in companies run by white men that frankly clearly weren't venture backable, right? Or that they weren't successful sure. because they ultimately failed. And you can actually both see it through anecdotally and also through, through data that women and upper underrepresented groups that have an underrepresented founders that have more traction, they have the same credentials or the same traction or even better credentials usually end up getting funded less often or with less money at lower valuations relative to white men. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's super important that we have that conversation with, with people who are trying to advocate for them that says like, what is the true solution to all of this? Sure. And again, like it's gonna be a harder solution, right? But ultimately it's gonna be longer term and it's gonna be more sustainable, which is to how like, and Dell is an inspiration in this regard that like, we don't need to break into VC, we need to break VC. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's why I guess my, my point is if they, when I think about network, it's not just about people, it's about knowledge too. And you have, if you have people who have experience and here's how you get early customers, here's how you can validate a problem in a, in a more efficient way. Here's how you excite employees to come join you on the journey. Those kinds of things are experiences and knowledge that aren't just out there and always readily available. Those are the kinds of things that I think within networks people know and share. And that's why I, I think about trying to bring that to new networks, if that makes sense. That does. And I would say that like what you say is a, is a really good point in that white men have known how to play the game for a long time. Yes. And diverse founders have not. That's right. right. So they don't know, like they just have never been taught what a venture backable business looks like because they don't have anybody to teach them like you just mentioned. And so it's also really important on our end to be able to work through it with them to make sure that like, we don't just disregard because they haven't done it, but rather continue to work with them in the way that we might work with, with a white male founder, right? Or disregard the white male founder because they haven't come up with a venture backable business like we have for so many years with those who are non-white male who also don't have a venture backable business. So it's really, really important to make sure, yes, that we teach them how to position their company so that it solves a real problem with a real tech back solution that is scalable and also venture backable. And then I'll also mention that we should think about different ways to come up with, we should be also reframing the paradigm of what it means to invest in a, in a quote unquote venture backable business. And I think a perfect example is Tyler Tringas at, at Earnest Capital, who's doing it entirely different. And he loves to invest in what they call calm businesses, right? Mm -hmm. Most of the time, they're all like SaaS businesses that have great recurring revenue that over time will build value. And as long as you get in at the very first check, right? And he uh, subscribes to the idea of like, we're, you know, we theoretically should be first check, last check, right? You just need this little extra step to get to that next mile. Sure. That per that company will eventually exit, sure. right? It might not exit at the billion dollar company, but it that's will okay. exit and it's going to bring right. LPs return on their investment that are bigger than the S&P 500. That's, right. and that's, or, or that's really all we should be shooting for anyway is, exactly. is you know, or at least a, a benchmarkable return. It doesn't. Right. And I, I think that's been part of the challenge I see too, is being a, a first check type of investor, which is what we often are, there continues to be this widening gap between the early investors like us and where the bigger, larger funds want to come in. 
And so there are some increasing gaps that we have to also fill along the way. And that's where I see a ton of value also in the network that you're building in that we may be willing to go in first. There may not be a lot of others that want to join us that early, but if we can get it to some early milestones yep. and some early growth metrics, then we can bring in this broader network that we do need to continue to cultivate that are still going to be required before some of these institutional investors are willing to come in. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is build some of those pipelines to them. And it's actually interesting to mention that because, you know, in my time that I've started to learn more and more about, about venture capital funds and everything, you know, I've started to think about like what a theoretical fund of my own might look like. Mm -hmm. And I actually found that this gap that you speak of exists essentially where this one company, this one founder that I'm an advisor for exists. And there's tons of these companies and where they right. exist is beyond the idea stage, right? Beyond, yep. and even beyond the MVP stage, right? They have a little bit of early traction relative to their company and they have a fully functioning MVP. It's not just like wireframes or it's not just like, you know, here's what it would look like. It's like, no, like this is happening. This is live. People are coming on. People are, people are interacting it with it, right? But they don't have enough to really dazzle right. venture capitalists. And so, but they don't really need it, right? They just need a little bit of money. They don't need $500,000. They don't need a million dollars, right? Mm -hmm. They really only need like a few hundred thousand dollars in order to get to that milestone that would then shoot them through the moon to get to that VC, to get to that VC money. Now they're, now they're still raising 500,000, a million dollars because they need like, they need to get to that point, sure. right? Because they need to overshoot. Right. But in reality, there are probably hundreds of companies out there at this juncture where they've built an MVP, they have early traction, but just like not enough to get to even the VCs that call themselves early stage because it's such a it's such a saturated market that from the founder's perspective or from the VC's perspective, they have enough in there that like they don't necessarily need this. So if you actually fill that gap in between someone like you who's like true first check kind of person right? And the VC, you're actually going to find yourself investing in a lot of diverse founders That's right. with good quality products with customers and at much better valuations. Cause many of them are really at valuations in that like three to five, maybe 6 million, as opposed to many of the VCs end up in the eight to 10 million. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're spot on. And I think the the, the opportunity there is to help the founders understand different ways to finance the business at that stage. And that you can use, whether it's different instruments or different structures that can help them along that journey, that it's not, you know, the hard part is you read TechCrunch and you see these perfectly illustrated PR pieces essentially and i've i've just been doing this for so long that i can tell you most companies actually don't even in actuality operate or in fundraise in the way that it gets portrayed in the media oh yeah and that it's you know you decide to get into this you're you're almost always fundraising you're you're taking it in different pieces you try to somewhat package it up legally but it's not what you read and i think that's that's part of, again, bringing people into the network to help them understand you're not going to get everything you need by just reading about it 
online, you, you need to be with people who've actually lived this and can help you through it and have your best interest in mind, which is just about being successful. It's not about how do I get you to a billion dollars? It's about how do I get you to a success ideally where you have a profitable business and yeah. then you can totally control your own destiny. Yeah. Do what you want. That's right. That's right. So as you think about, you know, you mentioned breaking VC, I'd love your perspective on equity crowdfunding and what role you think it may play in this. So I might, I, I have yet to put this out like on, on Twitter. Cause I feel like I might get some pushback, but I have actually kind of found myself pulling back a little bit from equity crowdfunding a little bit. Um, I, I really do think it's amazing, right? Mm-hmm. I think that the, I, the concept of allowing yes. people to, to, to buy equity into this and, and I've maxed, you know, I maxed out my, my amount for, for the year, right? Which is unfortunate because there are amazing deals that mm-hmm. I would love to be a part of, mm-hmm. but I, I can't, right? Where I'm finding trouble now is that there are a lot of people that just see deals out there, right? And they say, oh, this is a really cool company. So I'm going to invest $200. I'm going to invest $500, which is great. However, because of the limits around it, I actually think that people need to be more diligent about it. And what I'm starting to think about is it actually probably is not that great for individuals to be investing directly into startups, mostly because the startups that put themselves on these crowdfunding platforms are not the best deals in the world. You actually don't really know what you're getting. And the reason being is the crowdfunding platforms need as many deals as possible because that's how they make their money, right? So we fund Republic, you know, those are the two big ones. Mm-hmm. It's really amazing that they're offering it, but, you know, these companies are having, you know, eight, $12 million valuations. Some of them are high as 16, $20 million valuations on like safe notes. And it just, it doesn't make sense to me to invest in that way. Because frankly, if you're investing in a company that is going to crowdfunding at a $8 million valuation or a $16 million valuation, and you're putting in $500, right? The most you're going to get out of it probably is maybe a 10x, right? Because you, you need this, you know, you need this company to turn into a billion dollar company. Very few of them are going to, but even if them have mild exits, right? At the two, $300 million exit, which is great, but it's mostly great for the institutional VCs and the other investors that have fifty, dollars $100,000 in there, right? You're going to be the last person to get that money. And so it's very possible that you might end actually end up with maybe only your two or three X, which is fine. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you're putting in $2,200 you know, in total, and one of them comes back and, you know, you put in $200 into one and that one comes back with three X, you just made 600 bucks and you just, you just failed. Right. And of course that you're talking about five to seven years, right. To make 600 bucks. On the other hand, I actually think it would be a much better system if two things happen. Number one is we figured out a way to get more people involved into syndicates and into venture capital funds. And two, I think also it would be much better if we could figure out a way to get financial advisors to be more involved in the early stage asset class. Because it's currently like not, my understanding is that it's not legal for financial advisors to recommend private private deals to their clients, right? That includes real estate as well. But if you're raising- They also don't get paid on them, which is probably the bigger issue, let's be honest. (laughs) Yeah. And so as a result, right? 
Financial advisors are not incentivized and frankly, in some regards, not allowed to recommend private asset deals to their clients. But these are the people that should be, right? And so it would make, if, it would make much more sense to encourage more people to go to their financial advisor and say, how can I find early stage asset deals, right? How can I find more venture capitalists to invest in, right? And then of course, we need to figure out a way to ensure that more venture capitalists have access to these accredited investors in order to bring in more LPs. You know, it's really amazing, I think, actually for um, people who are raising under $10 million because they can bring in 250 LPs, right? But again, you still have that really tough thing around the minimum check size, right? Because the minimum check size is still going to be something like, you know, 10 grand, which is very difficult for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So if we figured out a way to bring in more people to venture capitalists, and that's why I've actually loved what Arlen has done, what Tyler did by offering the ability to invest in their management firm, their management company, in order to basically crowdfund for, G for VC. I love that. And I think we should yes. be offering more of that. I think people need to understand what they're getting from it. That's though. That's what's a little bit opaque, even with, you know, I think with what she's doing, what others are, are trying to do around it. I think it's awesome. And it is. It's, a, it's a step forward. It's still pretty experimental to your point. Uh, what, where I'm getting excited about it is to, to potentially invest alongside professional investors, like mm -hmm. what, like hey, backstage I'm, syndicate. Yeah, where I'm going to invest in this company and I'm going to allow the the crowd to invest along with me at the same as term. an at the same terms. I think that's amazing. The other yes. part that I love is when a company, we're looking at this with one of our companies right now, where we have a bunch of customers that want to invest yeah. in the business. They are passionate. And my view is we're in owners of this. Why not allow these customers that are huge believers in what we're doing to be investors in this and owners of this as well. And I think that movement, I've got a ton of excitement and support for as well. All of those things, I definitely agree with. All of those things I think are really, really amazing. And I think though that's what we should be focusing on more so than direct investments straight into startups. Because yes. as I'm like seeing more and more, you're going to start to see more companies with worse deals right. with worse uh, with worse terms. And I think just like we were talking about the very beginning of this, which is when people start their angel investing career by just investing in their buddy's son's company, right? And the two or three companies that they get because of their inner network and they ultimately go to zero, they say to themselves, this isn't for me. I just invested a total of $100,000 last year into startups and they all like went to crap. And so I'm, I'm out. That's right. So what we need to do is encourage people to be very specific and very intentional about who they invest in and how they invest. Zach, so good. Uh, I, I know we're up against time, but thank you for joining me. Thank you for your passion and your excitement. I, I see an incredibly bright future for you in this world that we're in and look forward to finding things that we can collaborate on. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Thanks for joining me on the Operate podcast and look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week, get out there and operate.